tends to, uh, there we go, okay. As I was saying, uh, no, um, yeah, it's, it's a joy to be here. And, and so I do want to talk a little about missions. The title for the message is Doing Missions in Union with Christ. However, I also intend this to be a, a Christmas message. Uh, from John chapter 20, verse 21. And I picked that. Um, you guys don't know me as well, but the, the church I pastored for seven years, they knew that I had a reputation for picking unconventional passages for Christmas. And I wanted to uh, like live up to my reputation by picking this passage uh, for the, the Christmas season. I'll say more about uh, why that is uh, a Christmas passage, as I'm understanding it, and as I understand Christmas as we go on. But I want to let you know on the front end that, yes, I do intend this to be related to Christmas. But let me read the passage first. Uh, John chapter 20, um, beginning at verse uh, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors, this is after Jesus' resurrection, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. It's an important detail we'll come back to later. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we we ask that you would be with us uh, in and through your word. You are present with your word. Your word is effectual. Your word creates the reality of which it speaks. So, Lord, we pray now that you would use your word to create in us life obedience, joy. Lord, may we be glad as we see by faith the Lord and long for the day when we will see him face to face. Lord, use your word to cause us and call us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you and fill us with all the comfort and joy and rest that we need in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just locate this passage in Scripture uh, very briefly. Uh, This is, as I said uh, briefly, this is after Jesus has been resurrected, but before he goes back up into heaven. Those 40 days that he walked the earth, we don't get much about those days in Scripture. Nevertheless, um, this was a very important time. It's kind of an unnatural time. Jesus is, as one theologian put it, in the state of exaltation, but not yet in the place of exaltation. In the state of exaltation, he is raised from the dead by the glories of the Father. He is the the resurrection life, but he's not at the place where he belongs, at the right hand of God. And he's not there yet because he wants to give the disciples some instructions for the time in which he is gone. He didn't leave them and simply say, go find something constructive to keep you out of trouble before I come back. No. He gave them a task, a very important task. Every writer uh, records, every uh, gospel writer records something of Jesus' commission to his disciples. Matthew tells uh, us that Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Spirit. 
John's version of the Great Commission is a bit shorter. It's right there in verse 21 that I read. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. John's account there of the Great Commission is uh, shortened to the point. Well, what I love about that account is he makes an amazing connection there. He connects Jesus being sent by the Father to us being sent. In essence, this passage, and I'm really going to confine the message mostly to that verse, as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. That, that's basically what we're going to look at. Um, but essentially what's going on in that passage is a comparison is being made. John is, Jesus is saying that just as or in a similar manner in which he is sent by the Father, so also we are sent by him. And if we want to understand this passage, we have to think, what is that connection? What is the similarity? The the key word we want to hone in on there is as. What is the nature of that as, that that comparison that he is making? What is the similarity between the way in which the Father has sent him and the way in which he is sending us? Now, you might be thinking, okay, how does that relate to Christmas? (laughs) Well, in this way, Christmas is about the Father sending the Son, right? And what do the angels say to the shepherds? They say, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And if you think about it, that is one of the most unusual birth announcements, not the least of reasons that it was done by angels. Right? People are getting some impressive birth announcements these days, but haven't heard any angelic ones yet. But, but really, what's most striking about this is that the child is born unto you. He's saying that the shepherds, right? Normally, the child is born unto the parents, right? To, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so welcome the birth of their child, their child. But this is unto you is born this day in the city of David. Strange, isn't it? Well, The angels there are building off the promise that was made back in Isaiah. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Which is to say the the child has been sent. The son has been sent. God has sent his son. Christmas is about the loving father sending his amazing son into the world for us because we so desperately need him. So let's put some things together here then. If, if Christmas is about the sending of Jesus, and if we understand from the passage in John that Jesus being sent compares to our being sent, then Christmas must be about us being sent, must be about us going to the nations. We cannot look at the baby in the manger and only see the most wonderful gift that we could possibly receive. We must also see in that baby in the manger the most pressing task, the most important task that we could possibly be given. Why? Because his being sent into the world is a paradigm for us being sent into the world. And so we cannot separate the gift from the task. Christmas is about missions. And that's not just something I've sort of conjured up for my own self-interest here. Um, It it really is. If you read the Bible, the deep storyline of the Bible, it is about missions. It is about God sending his son for the sake of the lost, for us. And if we are to be about that, 
if we are to capture the real spirit of Christmas there, then we will be about the same thing. Now, I want us to see a couple things in this passage. First, I want us to see that this is an unexpected comparison. The fact that Jesus makes any connection at all between the way he is sent and the way we are sent is kind of shocking given other things in the book of John. And I think Jesus expects this to be shocking, which is why he says, even so. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's emphasis here. There's a a comparison that we might not expect. He He wants that to linger in their minds for a while that comparison. Now, why would it be shocking? Why would it be a stretch? Well, because if you read the whole book of John, John repeatedly speaks about the uniqueness of him being sent by the Father and how that uniqueness proves that he is not like anyone else, right? He is different. Why is he different? Because he is sent by the Father in a way that no one else is. Let me just give you a few passages where this is uh, a main idea. John, um, Uh, In in chapter 5, Jesus says, The works that I am doing bear witness about me. What is it about him that they bear witness? That the Father has sent me. And Jesus there is doing unique works that no one else can do, right? And those unique works bear witness to his unique being sent, the, the unique way in which he has been sent by the Father. Or in John 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the Father and that the Son is sent by the Father in such a unique way. Or in John chapter 7, Jesus proclaimed, "Um, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. But I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. In other words, the people around him did not know God because they failed to recognize the uniqueness of the sending of Christ. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that Jesus was sent by the Father in such a unique way that no one else was. And we learn that this is the key to his whole ministry. And we also learn that when Jesus is challenged about his the unique way in which he is sent, he doesn't back down. He doesn't say, okay, okay, there's some similarities between me and you. No. He says, if you don't recognize the unique way in which the Father has sent me, then we have different fathers, and yours is not the good one. My point is this. Uh, To the outside world, Jesus uses the unique sense in which he is sent by the Father to differentiate himself from everyone else. To say, you are not like me, and if you want to understand me, you have to appreciate how we are different. How I am sent by the Father in a way that you are not. And that's why it's so shocking when he says to his own, to his believers, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's letting them inside. He's bringing them in to the inner circle. Friends, if you're here today and you don't see Jesus as unique, if you see him as one of many teachers, one of many good people in the world, don't try to say that you and Jesus are on the same team because, you know, he likes helping people and you like helping people, so you're, you're you know, practically identified, right? That's not how it is. 
If that's how you think it is, then I have to tell you it will not go well for you when you stand before him. You can look at all the things that you've done in his name, but he will say, depart from me, for I've never known you. I never knew you. See, the way into Jesus' inner circle, and he does have an inner circle. He does want to invite you in. The way in is not by doing things that Jesus would like and then trying to impress him with all you do. Rather, the way into Jesus' inner circle is to recognize who he is uniquely. It is to see that he is sent by the Father in a way that no one else is. That he has a unique role that you need to receive yourself. And then, after that, you can be sent by him. The irony is that if we do recognize Jesus for who he is and trust him for who he is, he will say to you, now I am sending you as the Father has sent me. He will say, my Father and your Father. He will include you in what he is doing. The moment you trust in him for what you could never do yourself, at that moment, he says, we're on the same team. At that moment, he brings us in. Isn't that amazing? I think we see here something of Jesus' heart. His heart to include. His heart to bring others along. Jesus really does love the people the Father has given him. He really does love those people who he died for. He wants them to be part of the work that he is doing. We see that love displayed to his disciples. We learn in these verses that the disciples were, as it says, in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. That same fear made it so that every single one of those disciples abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. And so we might say to Jesus, are are you sure you want to include these guys? (laughs) Are these really the ones you want to entrust your ministry to as you leave the earth? But he he really does love them. (laughs) He really wants them with him. That's why he comes to them and he says, peace. And this is not just the standard greeting. This is an announcement from the crucified and risen Lord. And he shows them his hands and his side so as to say, I purchased this peace for you. It is okay. You are welcome. And he doesn't just give them a token task to keep them happy. Here, do this so you feel important. No. Jesus was all about making the Father known. That's why he came. And he gives them that same work to do. Make the Father known. Show the world the love of the Father. He gives them the most important task. Friends, I wonder, do you, do you appreciate that? Do you, do you rejoice at being included on Jesus' mission like that? Isn't there something in you that wants to be part of, of something, of a cause so worthy? Don't, don't you deep down inside want to sacrifice greatly in order to be part of something bigger than yourself? You want to be part of something worth sacrificing for? I think we all want that to some degree. It's because we're made <laughs> to follow Jesus. We're made to to be in a relationship with God where he gets our all. He gets everything. And that's what he's given us here. He's called us to himself. The good news of the gospel is that living for ourselves is simply not an option anymore. Paul says that there's no soldier that is concerned about civilian affairs, but only how he can please the one who enlisted him. And and friends, Christ has enlisted us. (laughs) He, He has called us. He has given us a commission. We ought to be about pleasing him now. 
And a question for us to ask is, do we seek to be as inclusive as Jesus is here? Now, I don't mean, you know, inclusive in the sense of doctrinally or compromising there. I mean inclusive in the sense of those who we would want to be on mission with. When Jesus says here, I am sending you, that you there is plural. I'm sending all of yous. <laughs> I'm sending you all, we could say. It includes that motley crew of disciples that are all very different and would never actually be united to one another <laughs> because of the, the things that separated them. It includes the wealthy and the not so wealthy. It includes those who, you know, the, the people who are smooth talkers and, and easy to to be out there and make friends and communicate and includes those who might be somewhat awkward. It's actually part of God's plan that those who might not be the most logical candidates to be sent out in the world to represent the Father and the Son are those who actually are indeed sent out in the world to represent the Father and the Son. Paul says God chooses the weak, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. This is Jesus' idea of the ideal people to send out on a mission to represent him. And the question is, is that our idea as well? Are we being just as inclusive in the kinds of people that Jesus is sending as he is? So the first point to see here is that the comparison that Jesus is making between him being sent and we being sent is one that is shocking. The fact that he makes any comparison at all, the fact that he can say as there to, to show a similarity is, is not intuitive when you've read other parts of the book of John and as you understand who Jesus is. And yet, and yet that actually is reality. He is really sending us as he is sent by the Father. Now what is the what is the key central point to that comparison? What is the similarity between the way the Father has sent Christ and the way the Son has sent us? I think, I think the point here is that there is a relational center to it. I think that's the deepest similarity that Jesus is getting at. The deepest reason why Jesus can compare his being sent by the Father to our being sent by him is that he is sent in union with the Father. That's what we get again and again throughout the book of John. Jesus comes in union with the Father, and we are sent in union with Christ. That's the reason for the title of this message, Doing Missions in Union with Christ. As the Son comes in union with His Father, so we come and we go in union with Christ. Now, we see this, uh, this idea of union throughout the book of John. It, it begins... <laughs> for us in full display at the very outset of John, right? In the beginning was the Word. That's how John begins. The Son. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then at the end of that opening section there, it says, no one has seen God, but the only begotten who is with the Father has come to make Him known. Th those opening verses are like the prologue to the book of John that sort of helps us understand how the rest of it unfolds. Or, or better yet, it's, I think of those verses in the book of John like the opening crawl in a Star Wars, right? Those words that come on the screen in the beginning, right? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? And, and those words give the backstory of all the action that follows. In the same way in the book of John, the, the first few verses there set us up for everything else. They tell us that there is indeed 
the Father and the Son who exist in this perfect loving relationship throughout eternity. The, the Word was with God, and that word with is actually translated more often than not in the Bible as toward. The Word was you know, oriented toward God. Like th- There's this withness, there's this relational unity that they have before the world was. There's this togetherness, this fellowship. That explains everything that comes after it. It explains why Jesus died. It was in obedience to the Father who He loves. That explains why Jesus is resurrected, because the Father wants to show the world the Son's glory. It explains why the essence of salvation is to know God the Father and Jesus whom He has sent. So that prologue is the the opening statement that helps us understand everything else that comes later. And that prologue underscores the relational unity between the Father and the Son, the oneness that they share. And then that unity gets, you know, builds steam as the book of John unfolds. Jesus describes his relationship with God, with the Father, as one of mutual indwelling. That's how theologians describe it. Mutual indwelling. Sometime, maybe if you have off for Christmas, read through the book of John and you'll see these statements that Jesus makes over and over again. Like, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He'll say to the Father, I in you and you in me. He'll say, the Father and I are one. That's the language of mutual indwelling. If you indwell something, you you inhabit it. right? You live within it. You live within your home. You inhabit your home. You indwell your home. What does Jesus mean when he says that he indwells the Father? It means that All the Father's attributes, His justice, His love, His holiness, His glory, all of those attributes envelop Him. They're the context of the Son's life. They're the space in which He lives. But the the Son does not say that I am simply in the Father. He also says the Father is in me, which is why we call it a mutual indwelling. That's kind of hard to wrap our brains around, right? You can say, I live in my house, but you can't say, my house lives in me, right? That doesn't work. That's, that's why the Trinity is different, and we ought, not to, we ought to be careful about any analogies we make from that, right? But uh, the early church did, did describe one, gave us one analogy that I think gets closer, and it's, they said that the Trinity, that mutual indwelling, looks like a dance, They use the word in Latin, perichoresis, which literally means to dance around. It's from where we get our word choreography. They said that's kind of what this idea of mutual indwelling is like. Think of maybe a a ballroom dance or some sort where the, or or figure skating where the the two people uh, inhabit one another's space. They they move in such choreographed ways that, that although they are two, they are acting as one because of the way they, they move in and out of one another's space. And the early church there, and using that word perichoresis, was saying that the Trinity is this amazing dance. The members of the Trinity dance around one another. They, they inhabit one another's space. One pastor put it like this. He said, when the early Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors at the center of his being the other. I love that phrase. Each divine person harbors at the center of his being the other. In constant movements of overture and acceptance, each person, listen, envelops and encircles the other. The Father and the Son, 
and the spirit as well, harbor at the center of their being the other. They work all to show off one another's glory. That's why Jesus prays to his Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, and glorify me with the glory we had before the world was. That's perichoresis. That's that dancing around. That's that harboring at the center of their being the other. They, they share this same glory. This glory is personal. And when they inhabit that glory together, they inhabit one another. So what does this mean for the way in which the Son is sent into the world? Well, it means that Jesus does not come into the world as the Son who sort of reached those age of, of independence when he wants to flex his wings and, and try to figure himself out and, and go off and do something on his own. He did not come like that, right? He did not come to earth begging the Father to give him a mission of his own. And the father said, okay, it'll be good for you to get out of the house for a while. That's not what Christmas is about. He does not come to earth that way. He comes to earth in the exact opposite way. He comes to earth preserving all the relational closeness with the father and displaying that for all to see. The unity is displayed in the fact that the father and the son have one plan, which is to save their people and bring those people to themselves. Even when Jesus is hanging there, naked and pierced through on the cross, even there, the unity between the Father and the Son is not broken, but rather demonstrated. Because there, the Son is most fully carrying out the Father's plan. One pastor I appreciate remarked that when Jesus is there hanging on the cross, that's when not only we sing, but that's when the Father sings the line from that hymn, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. The Father sings that to the Son when the Son is on the cross. Because the Son is obediently carrying out their plan to save their people for their glory. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's a kind of mutual indwelling between us and Jesus then. A perichoresis of sorts, not the same thing, but a, a like thing, an analogy of it. We are sent in union with Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. And one of the things that most clearly demonstrates that is that we are sent with the Spirit. Right after Jesus gives that commission, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. What does He do? He, he breathes on them and He says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the same Spirit that the Father gave the Son at the outset of His ministry, right? The Spirit came down, descended upon Jesus as a dove at His baptism, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is sending that same Holy Spirit that was with Him in His ministry now to us, now to His people, so as to say, These are my people in whom I am well pleased. I love them. I am sending my spirit with them so that I will be with them. The spirit of Christ with us means that we are not alone. We are not left as orphans. We cannot be alone for Jesus is there with us. He is with us in the spirit that he has given us. That's why Matthew's commission, he says, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. How can he say I am with you right at the point when he is leaving? 
because he is sending us the Spirit. It is to his advantage that he goes away so he can send the Spirit to be with us. The Spirit is the most amazing gift that we could ever receive. It is through the Spirit that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And the Spirit works to reveal the love of Christ to us. The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. He is the Spirit of adoption. He is the Spirit that draws us to the Father. But don't miss the fact that the Spirit is not simply a gift. I mean, He is a gift, but He's the gift that we need for the task that we've been given. The Spirit is given that we may go out into the world and, and bring the gospel to all people. We ought not to use the Spirit simply for our own private experience with Jesus. That's not why He's been given. The Spirit is given to us to make Christ known. Or better, the Spirit uses us to make Christ known. You know, John uh, 17 is another place where we see this same kind of comparison that is being made. Right? The comparison between the way that the Son is sent and the way we are sent. And it says there, Jesus uh, prays, as, as you sent me into the world, so I, I have sent them into the world. See, that comparison again is, is there in John 17. Right before that, Jesus has said that he sanctifies his own by the Father's word. He, that means he sets us apart. He sections us off. Right before he, he prays to the Father that he is sending us like the Father has sent him, he says that he has sanctified his people. He, he has sectioned them off. He even says, I don't pray for the world, but for those who believe. He's making a distinction between the believers. He's, he's sanctifying. That means to set them apart. But why does he set us apart? To send us back into the world. Back to that place that God so loves but also back to that place that loves darkness rather than light because its deeds are evil. You see, just as God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world, so also he sends us into the world because he loves the world. We ought not to be surprised then when evil things happen. As Jesus said, don't be surprised when the world hates you, when they call you, say all sorts of evil things about you. Don't be surprised. But we are sent in union with Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. This morning, I happened to stumble upon some blogs by missionaries relating their experience in, their, in the countries they went to. And, um, this was a, a bit sobering, as we are about to land in a foreign country in uh, just over a month. And um, it, reading those blogs reminded me that it is going to be hard. Uh, I will be sick. I do not like being sick. Um, but I will be sick, I will be misunderstood, I will not understand. It is hard to live out the Great Commission in a foreign country. You can pray for us that we, we understand that, we, we take stock of that, and we're not caught off guard by the difficulties that come up. But you know, it's also hard to live out the Great Commission in your own country. Sometimes there's a sense where it's even harder because you feel like you should fit in, you feel like you should get it, you feel like it should be your home, and, and it's not. We must not forget that Christ has sent us into the world in union with himself. So we are not alone. He is with us. One of the most interesting ways I've seen this captured is by uh, the title of a book and all the contents of the book too. 
um, by a New Testament scholar named Michael Gorman. And the title of his book, it's about missions in the book of John, and the title is Abide and Go. Abide and Go. And he's saying that's, that's basically what, a mission, what missions is. It's abiding and going. And if you think about it, there's a paradox there, right? I mean, usually if you're doing something where you're abiding, you're also not going, right? I'm not going to go anywhere tonight. I'm just going to abide in my house and watch TV. Well, you're, you're not going. Or, hey, I'm going to go out tonight. That means you're not abiding, right? Try to think of a sentence where you use abide and go in the same sentence where you refer to the same thing. It's, it's pretty challenging. I wasn't able to come up with one. Nevertheless, missions in the book of John is about abiding and going. And we're not doing two different things. That's the same reality, abiding and going. When it comes to the following Jesus, we go abidingly and we abide goingly. That's how we go, by abiding. How do we abide? By going. To abide with Jesus is to abide in such a way that we are also going. And to go is to go in such a way that we are also abiding. Which is to say that when we go, we are not creating any relational distance. We do not become separated from Jesus when he sends us out. Rather, we go in such a way that the unity there with Jesus is intensified and magnified. When Jesus gives them the Great Commission, it's not because the disciples are mature enough now to tackle something on their own. No, he he sends them out to deepen and intensify the unity and the bond that he has with them, but by making them part of his plan, of his mission. Our unity with Jesus is not a unity in spite of going, but rather it's because of our going. And this is because when it comes down to it, there really are not two different sendings, right? There really is only one sending where Jesus is sent and we are caught up with him in that sending. There's only one sending. It is the only one movement. It is the movement of the love of the Father going forth into the world. That's why the Son comes down. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And we join in that movement of the love of God coming down into the world. But not only does this comparison of the Father being sent to us being sent mean fellowship and unity between us and Christ, it also means fellowship and unity with one another. Listen to how Jesus applies this reality of the the similarity in, in the sendings in John 17. Starting at verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Listen that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Powerful words there. This is the context where Jesus has just said he is sending us as he is sent by the Father. We are called up into the unity of the Father and the Son. And that unity means that we are not only one with Christ and one with the Father, we are one with, with one another. I in them and you in me. Listen, so that they may be perfectly one. For Jesus to send us like the Father has sent him is for us to be sent together in unity as one. 
Just as the three members of the Trinity are one, so also we who are many are one body. And what, is the, what great end does this unity achieve? We'll look there at verse 23. So that, Jesus says, the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Unity among believers is so important. Unity makes clear the one thing that Jesus says is so essential to his ministry. That is, he is sent by the Father. How is the world going to know that Jesus is sent by the Father? By our unity together. It's not simply that they will know we are Christians by our love, as the song says, but they will know the Father has sent the Son and loves the Son by our love. That's what our unity does. Good thing then that unity among believers is, you know, one of the things that Christians nearly always get right, right? Good thing that whatever other faults we have, the world always sees us together. Good things Christians never ridicule one another and put down one another on social media. No, it's, it's kind of like Satan knows exactly how to blunt the church's witness. And he attacks at that area again and again and again with remarkable success. Sometimes Christians feel a tension between working for unity and plowing ahead in evangelism. I suggest that's a false dichotomy. The work of evangelism happens along the road of unity. And by the way, I don't mean a, a kind of fake unity that even the world can muster up. I mean a real unity that is only generated by the gospel. That's the kind of unity that displays the love of the Father for the Son. It struck me how important and how unique that unity was. Uh, some time ago, as I was a pastor, uh, I was, and I'll, I'm only, you know, this is a whole story behind how this ended up happening, but I was on a bike ride with the local LGTB community. They were doing a bike ride for uh, Raise Money for Cancer, and I kind of invited myself along. So it was the LGTB community and the Baptist pastor. Um, kind of an interesting, fun time. It was fun, actually. And, and I thought to myself, as I was you know, among them, I thought to myself, you know, if you were to come to my church, you would see a completely different kind of diversity. Uh, thinking to myself, th these are the people who want to pride themselves on being diverse, right? But, but what they were was a bunch of sort of affluent, upper-class white homosexuals. That, that was their diversity. They, they were all the same. There was no diversity. And I thought to myself, if you want to see a real unity in the midst of diversity, come to my church and see people of, of all nations and all tribes, of young and old, of, of uh, all different ethnicities. And, and they're together. In the gospel, we must have a unity that can only be explained by the fact that we are sent by none other than the Trinity. We must reflect the one who has sent us in the way in which we are sent. Now, that might be very easy to say amen to, but when the rubber meets the road, this is hard. There's always going to be a cost. It means a lot of active listening. A lot of putting our, ourselves in other people's shoes. It means overlooking a lot of trivial offenses and letting love cover a multitude of sins. It means saying hard things to people when they're acting in such a way that threatens the unity. And it means knowing the difference between the, the, the second one and the third one there. 
It means intentionally befriending those who are different than we are, inviting them into our lives, into our homes. Uh, Friends, these things are not easy, but why would we expect them to be? We are being sent as the Son was sent, and the Son was sent and died upon a cross. And he tells us that if anyone wants to follow him, we must pick up our cross and follow him. The death that we experience is usually not a one-time act when we are called to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. It's usually a million little deaths, deaths to our preferences, deaths to our own comfort, deaths to our own desires to preserve the unity of the Spirit that glorifies Christ. Well, I must conclude. May you all have a Merry Christmas, which is to say, may you rejoice in the gift of the Savior that is given to you. May the gift of Christ be to you the most joyous news that you could ever hear. But may your joy in the gift translate into a readiness and willingness for the task. As the Father has sent Christ, so also Christ has sent us. Let us go with joy, announcing, as the angel did, the good news of great joy for all the people. Let's pray. Our God, we we thank you for Christ. We thank you that the child has been born to us, not in that sense, to Mary and Joseph, but to us the Son was given, that he might die upon the cross to give us what we could never have worked out and earned or made for ourselves. And yet we also thank you that for those of us who have trusted in him, who who believe in him and recognize that his death and resurrection is the only thing that can, can solve our greatest problems, for those of us who recognize that, you have brought us into the task. You have given us a a mission, a commission. And Lord, we pray that we would be obedient, that we would go, that we would go abidingly, that we would go not in a way that points to ourselves or draws on the resources just from ourselves, but we would go in union with Christ. We would go in fellowship of the Spirit, with the consolation of the Spirit, with the comfort of the Spirit. We would go with a confidence that we are in Christ, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done, and go with joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.